if there are rules in place and you want to play, then you got to uh, stick to the rules. If you don't stick to the rules, get out of the shop and, and, and do something else. That's what I was trying to do with the World Paragliding Series. It was, it was an attempt to uh, show the, the finger at the rules in place because I didn't like the rules. Now, if Ozone had done, done the same thing and said, okay, we'll make the Ozone World Series and we'll do it by our own rules, then I would have applauded them all the way. But they were they were playing inside the playing field, but cheating, and I I, <laughs> I, I couldn't take that. I, I have to admit that to you. I, I couldn't take that. It was too much for me. A little excerpt there from the last show with the very vocal and inquisitive and inspiring and amazing pilot Mad Syndergaard uh, about the ozone debacle last year with the uh, Enzo Gate too. I guess they call that. Um, Anyway, it's a fascinating talk. I hope if you missed that one, go back and grab it. Uh, I was just re-listening to it now to grab that little soundbite. And uh, he's got a lot of really fascinating things to say about sponsorship and about the art of winning and uh, mental preparation and competitions. And his history is really phenomenal. Started flying uh, competitions in 1994 and hasn't looked back since. Uh, really excited to bring you this show today. I finally got a chance to sit down, although not personally, but via Skype with uh, my great mentor and friend and film partner and flying partner, Nick Grease. Uh, Nick was our U.S. champion last year. He's uh, represented the U.S. team in the last couple of uh uh, world Championships. Uh, I met Nick the first time in 2012 in Haiti. I was really just starting to kind of sharpen my teeth with cross country, very new pilot back at the time with cross country. I was living in Morocco. We were getting done with the boat thing and uh, I'd been working with Nick with the magazine. He is the editor for uh, Ushpo, of course. I've been working with him for years with the magazine, but we'd never met. Uh, he invited me down to Haiti, which sounded like a good adventure. So went down there and, and uh, followed him around in the sky a little bit and uh, uh, he's been an incredible force in my life ever since. He was very instrumental in uh, my moving to Sun Valley and chasing distance here. And uh, every time we get in the air or we do a film project, we work together on 500 Miles to Nowhere and we work together in Malawi and uh, quite a few other projects. And it's always a great pleasure. Nick is hysterical, uh, very thoughtful, very concerned, uh, especially these days with safety. We'll talk about some of the things going down with USPA and insurance, and but also just his progression and history in the sport. Uh, I think you'll find this a fascinating and inspiring talk. Without further ado, Nick Grease. Mr. Grease, how are you, buddy? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. How are you? <laughs> Great, man. It's good to uh, sit down with you even in the virtual world. You're down in Salt Lake. I'm up in Sun Valley. It's too bad we couldn't do this in person, but uh, I know you just got back from Iran and you're busy and we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What I what I'd love to start with, Nick, um, you know, because I, I know all this because you and I have hung out so much together. But I think the listeners would really appreciate knowing how you went from uh, a media dude in New York and growing up in the city, and uh, you know, being a DJ at raves around the country and stuff, to becoming a paraglider. Can you give uh, Can you give us a little bit of history and how that transition went? Because that's not a real obvious transition. <laughs> yeah, I'm more DJed in my college dorm than around the country, but <laughs> I don't know, man. I've heard some of your material. It's pretty hot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I grew up uh, on Long Island, um, and uh, you know, part of the whole New York uh, culture. And um, after I, I worked a lot, actually, uh, uh, in my my dad's uh, PR firms, the firms that he worked for. Um, as just an intern or doing media lists or uh, doing surveys on the streets, which were always fun, getting data from, you know, handing out rat traps in exchange for collecting survey samples. And, um, and uh, yeah, just, you know, that was kind of my path. That was what I was supposed to do. Um, I was, that's what I was trained to do. Uh, so I went, you know, went to college, went through college. And um, after college, I went out and I did public relations for actually a hip hop 
uh, company <laughs> um, in LA. And so uh, I was in LA, you know, working, bar- barely working, sleeping on my friend's floor in Venice um, with like my head in, you know, in the refrigerator kind of thing. You know, I was, like, in his, I was sleeping in his kitchen because it was a one room place. And, um, and I couldn't make enough money to survive. So I would go down. I was, I had been dating for four years, um, Michelle Jeb, which is, you know, they're the Gabe Jeb and Dave Jeb and they were paraglider pilots and they ran Torrey Pines glider port. Um, Gabe and was so, the, uh, he was doing weather for us at, at nationals and Sierra. Is that Gabe? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So it was funny. I mean, cause like when I was in college, you know, she'd tell me, I'm like, well, what, you know, she, what do your family do? Oh, they work in communications. My mom's a teacher and her, and she's like, Oh, what is yours? And you know, they paraglider pilots. And I thought like, what? so they're unemployed, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they're bums. Is that what you're like, okay, like, whatever, you know, she was super driven. She got her PhD in, in archaeology and um, is, you know, is going to be a professor at the University of Michigan here. And, and, and so she was really driven. And so, yeah, um, <laughs> but lo and behold, I would, you know, I needed money uh, living in L.A. So I would go down to Torrey Pines and, and then I would flip burgers uh, at the restaurant. So, what year was um, this? Uh, 2001. Okay. All right. About yep. 15 years ago. Yeah, and so I'd flip burgers at the restaurant, and uh, and I just, you know, I actually went on a tandem with her dad, which was slightly awkward, um, you know, like giving you the, you know, what's your intentions with my daughter speech. And, you know, Let's go fly back in this rotor. Hang yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, this is freaky. And actually, I remember landing and being like, yeah, whatever, that was all right, you know, like, yeah. that didn't, that wasn't that cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was the same. My my first tandem experience was kind of like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah what's all the hubbub right. but, but I kept flipping burgers and I kept watching and it, you know what drew me in was the I guess the flow of paragliding you know it's just like skiing or mountain biking it's that that kind of that rhythm and the arc of the flying and so I just kept watching and watching and, and I just I don't know it just like it sucked me in um, and so I, I learned um, and uh I learned in 30 days. I flew every day for 30 days. So I quit both my jobs, and all I did was, was as you do when you become a paraglider, I guess. You went to paragliding rehab. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and in 30 days, I, I flew for 30. I got my P3 in 30 days. And then I got a job in New York um, on Madison Avenue at a PR firm. So, uh, you know, I kind of was like, ah, oh, well. My parents had worked so hard and long to bring me to the point where I would get that job. I figured I'd, I had to at least try it for a year. Um, so I did. So I took the job and I went for a year. And pretty shortly into it, I was like, this is hell, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, as well, the second day was, uh, what, so yeah, so my second day of work. I started September 9th, 2001. Um, so my second day of work was September 11th, uh, 2001. Um, and so I saw the first plane hit from the street as I was walking to work and yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I actually, I was, you know, I was definitely was like, what the F was that? You know, that's insane. Um, cause I saw a plane go behind the building and a fireball come out and go up it. And, um, I remember thinking, you know, like, wow, I went to too many raves maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of my first thought, like, geez, that's not good. Um, and then everybody around me was screaming. So that kind of, I was like, oh, wait, this is real. And um, so I called my dad. I'm like, a plane, you know, I told him, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. He worked up, you know, 50 blocks uptown from where I was. I was about two miles from the from the um, World Trade Center. And, um, you know, he's like, calm down and go to work. It's only your second day. He thought I was trying to get out of work. Oh, my God. It's, Crazy. you know, the classic New Yorker mentality. <laughs> right, right, right. Get to work. Get to work. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that was my second day, but you know, um, that, that's a whole other story. Um, you know, that, and you know, everybody in New York at that moment in history has a story and sure. all very interesting. Um, but yeah, when we witnessed this, this whole, you know, horrific moment in American history. Um, but, uh, so anyway, you know, I, I realized after that, maybe a week or two later, that I was not going to last. I, I have an amazing appreciation for people who can do corporate America, do nine to five. I, I just, I don't have the constitution. They're much think, stronger. Do you think that you know you would have come to that conclusion? You would have also come to that conclusion had nine eleven not happened, or was nine eleven just the hammer? I think nine eleven helped. I don't know. It was yeah. a long time ago now. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, I mean, yes, that helped. I was like, oh hell no, you know. Right. I think. 
when there's ever and, and you know it wasn't the strike necessarily i think it was probably the commuting in for the next two weeks and with the with the building burning mm. and my train line i you know I, I i was on the long Island. i was living at home um and that my train line was really heavily hit there's a lot of people that worked in the world trade center so like half the train was missing say um, so I think it, I think it was those two weeks, really, after three weeks. I don't know. Maybe it burned for a month. I mean, it burned forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. It's kind of cliche to say, like, yeah, like, that's what did it. But that, that it had to have helped. Sure. Um, it it fast-forwarded the process. Maybe you would have been there for three years instead of one or something. Right. So I, I, I committed then. And also the, the Yushpa magazine, you know, and – and I was listening to actually paragliding podcasts back then no of, of Dave Jeb, you know, and those, the, you know, yeah, my coworkers would get really mad because they were terrible sounding, like really tinny, echoey. They're like, put some headphones on, you know, um, <laughs> which I did. Um, but uh, I was like, sorry. Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I think I had a picture of a paraglider in my cubicle that, you know, and, and the Yushpa magazine is what, and, and Cross Country magazine, and those, you know, just keeping that inspiration, and I would go and kite in, in windy ball fields in New York, just in the rotor, just to get, so that I could go to Mexico for a weekend and do a thermal clinic, you know, so I'd be ready, um, so I would just, you know, just kite and kite and kite, you know, as much as I could, and then, um, you know, dream of flying, and all I did was dream of flying. And those magazines is kind of, you know, the the, the mag- magazines, you know, flying magazines have been a huge catalyst in my life, sure. um, and and that's why I work in, in them. And I, you know, I hope to put out content from everybody that sends it in, and and from myself that inspires others the way I've been inspired. Yeah, um, yeah. but. We're, we're, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about where you got to you know how you became the editor because CJ was running the magazine back then of course right and and then you're uh, yeah you, you took it over four or five years ago definitely right is that uh, the timeline eight, right eight years ago actually oh my gosh that's our, we, we our, haven't we've been working with you since the boat you're right <laughs> that's a long our time our hundredth issue is in June. Actually. Wow! Cool! Congratulations! Well, yeah. yeah, I definitely. That's one of my questions down the list here. But so take me back to you, you, you. Uh, so you lasted in New York a year. Yeah, one year. I basically I got a job at a ski shop, mm-hmm. um, so so I could work on the weekends, and I worked seven days a week. Um, and uh, then uh, I uh, went basically. I, reti- I, I retired. From- <laughs> 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 my, I've given my, you all I can give. My, yeah, <laughs> Passing this my, off. Grueling, my grueling one year of corporate America. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's about, to be honest. I only, I was in an entry-level position and, and basically just doing grunt work for a year. I, I know I didn't see daylight because I didn't smoke cigarettes. That's my regret. I wish I would have smoked cigarettes when I was there because <laughs> then I could have gone on break. Right. <laughs> <laughs> cigarettes can actually get you daylight. In- <laughs> In New York corporate environment, which is pretty funny. Maybe it's changed. 15 years is a long time. Um, so then I went back to Tory Pines. And Michelle, the Jebs were basically, you know, they were the most supportive people. And, and they're truly the reason why I learned to fly uh, as quickly as I did. Um, because they were, you know, I they would let me fly. I went there and started doing their PR and their communications. And, um, and then I would just fly every day. You know, and they would let they they appreciated that. They let me. They're like, yeah, go ahead. You can have an hour. Take it to, you know, or you know. And if there was no one there, I could fly for two hours. You know, they didn't and were care. You, were you? How were you making that a job? Then were you teaching then? Well, I was doing the communications for the glider. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then I started teaching short about six months in. You know. Yeah. Um, and then I taught, and I was actually a traveling sales rep for them. So there used to be traveling sales reps in paragliding. Um, and so they would send me to fly-ins and events, and uh, I would sell helmets and push the, you know, just like like a, as if I had like a cart full of t- you know trinkets, um, and uh, you know, and and they would pay for my trips, and we would get you know Tory Pines out there as an importer, um, and uh, and I more importantly for me, I, I would get to go flying in different places and grow my my knowledge base and grow my. Skill so it sounds like, I mean, pretty quickly you went from, uh, you know, I've never even flown Tory, but you went from, you know, ridge soaring Tory to understanding and seeing cross country. When did that whole side of your skill set start to develop? Well, I would see I, I, when I was there, I flew seven days a week. So 
Um, I flew at Tory five days a week when I was working, and then I would always take my two days off. Other people, they didn't, like Dave and Gabe, they'd work a lot, <laughs> you know, like seven days a week at Tory. Um, I would go to the mountains. And oh. go to yeah, so I would go fly in the mountains two days a week, and no matter what the weather, I was just like out there, you know. Right. Um, and there's a place called Blossom, um, which it has this little. It's a about a 15 mile round trip cross country route, but it's it's basically the perfect country place. You take off really low, you have to climb up to this altitude, then you you have to make one big transition to this thing that looks like El Cap. It's like a mini El Cap. Um, and then you climb up that in order to get back. And if you don't do the valley, the valley wind part on the way back, right, you land in the valley and you get in a lot of trouble. Uh, and so, what were yeah. you flying? Oh, God. yeah, I was on a one. You know, <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah. I mean, I flew. A, I, I mean, that's the thing. I flew a, a a one and then a low low end one two, and then I went to a high end one two, and I wanted to start racing. Um, <laughs> And that was pretty funny. Do you I, remember I my what first, that wing was? That was a Dragon independent. So I was on Paratech to begin with, a P twenty five, and then a P forty three. Yeah, I remember every wing. And then I had a, a Independence Dragon two, um, and that was like that to me. That I was like, this is. That's why I, I have a hard time understanding people when they're like, it's the wing. Because to me at the time, the wing was the shit. You know, yeah. I'm like, this wing is better than anything I've ever had. Right. Thing, you know, even if it wasn't flyable, I'd go out there and I'd side hill land, you know, and like I never would go if it was too strong. I'd always wait. I'd just sit out there in the desert and wait, you know, until it chilled out, you know, and it, you know, because at some point it's like right before dark. I'm like, okay, now I can fly, you know. And you, you, uh-huh. had, you had kind of a unique way. Maybe I'm jumping ahead too far, but you, you kind of had a unique way of getting into competitions. Um, d- didn't you start flying comps by kind of uh, just jumping into them, not actually being in the comp, like you'd poach them? <laughs> Was that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, uh, I forgot. I forget about that every so often. Um, yeah, I went to – my first comp was a World Cup. Um, in Aptenau, Austria, and that's where I actually I met Jamie Messenger, who has become a lifelong friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I I was just bad. so yeah, it's it's a bit so basically after Tori, I went through Tori. I taught there for two years, um, and then my girlfriend Michelle at the time she got a Fulbright in Morocco, and at the same time Bob Drury's um, uh, article on Morocco had just come out about flying in the Zagora, and uh, so I I was like, well, that's all I need to see, you know. <laughs> Um, and, and, and Felix Volk also had a picture in there of jumping off a dam with his hang glider. And I thought I was, you know, getting some out of Tory and I realized I was getting nothing. Um, and so I sold all my possessions, including my turntables, which I still regret. Um, and, uh, and, and basically traveled for a year with my glider. So I had a big glider on my back and then I had all my camping stuff and all my clothes on my front and other, so I had two glider bags. And I was just hitchhiking. Or in Morocco. Yeah, from Morocco to Slovenia. Wow. Yeah. You so, covered some ground. Yeah, yeah. So it was over a year. I went. To, I did like a language course for a month in uh, Granada. I, you know, I would look on on wherever the whatever we were looking at, paragliding Earth or whatever, and I'd find where the flying. I'm like, oh, they held a World Cup this in is, Granada. This is 2003, 2004. Yeah, 2003 probably. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 2003, 2004. Yeah. And so they held. Uh, you know, just like we do now, that people do. Like I was like, they had a World Cup in Granada. I'll go to a language school there for a month, and I would just go to class all morning, and then I'd. Take a bus out to um, Santa de la Vega, which is like where uh, the Rodriguez brothers are from, mm-hmm. and uh, and fly and just talk Spanish, and it was amazing. Um, but a lot. Then I went to like a comp up in, uh, you know, I did my first, you know, well, let's see, no, I, I guess my first comp was would be San Andre, because that was that was in France. I don't think I went back for that. Anyway, I did a couple comps. But one of them was a World Cup, and I was like, I can't get into this. So I just went, and uh, I, you know, I was kind of broke, so I would just sneak in and eat all the food they were serving to the pilots. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I would sneak on their buses to go up to launch. Um, but you weren't signed up. You would just <laughs> no, no. I, I was on a one two, and then like one day I got rejected from the bus. So I was like, fuck it. I was like, well. I know that there's a you know there's a launch there's a turn point up there, so I'd hike up to the turn point. And I'd wait. And then as soon as I'd see them coming, I would launch. And then I'd fly with them for like, you know, a minute before they'd leave me. And uh, I mean, no, I mean, some of the people, I'm like, wow, you're really doing bad. You know, like there's always that guy or girl that you're flying with in the comp that you're like, I'm doing really bad if I'm with this person. Right, right. 
And it's like, God, I just got to get away from them. How can I, you know? And I was that person to like 150 people. Well, take, um, take me back to what, what was your mind frame back then? Was this all in a, were you just super passionate about flying and, and you knew that comps would teach you? Yeah. Or were you, or were you like, I'm going to win a World Cup someday? Or what, you know, what, no. what, were you, what was your approach? Yeah, no, no. I, I just was, I just wanted to go flying. Okay. Um, and comps would teach me and, uh, you know, I, I mean, man, I didn't, I didn't make goal for my first like four or five comps maybe. Right. Um, you know, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's funny. I, I never thought of, and that, I actually never thought I would even be in the world cup for sure. Never. And then, um, Urs Schonauer actually, cause I was like, I was, you know, I was, I was staying with uh, this, this, uh, Swiss pilot named Andy Bierensteel. Uh, and he brought me, he's the one who brought me to Aptonau, actually. <laughs> he yeah, gave me a ride yeah. there. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, their whole camp, and Ur still races. I'm sure, I'm sure you know him. He's a great yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he's, he's the one, actually. I was like, you should come do this. And, you know, I'm like, what? Me? You know, it's one of those moments where I was like, no, I could never do this. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I never really thought much about it, but, but his friendliness kind of made me, you know, I always kept that in my mind. And so when it came, you know, as I got more and more hungry, but no, I never expected to win anything. All I want to do is make it to goal. Right. I mean, we had, you know, we joked that we had a team, we called it team big ears. Cause you know, we would mess around coming into goal or, you know, and, and I would try to do, I would practice helis when I was first competing, you know, before the start, cause I get so bored. <laughs> and I wasn't very good at them. <laughs> So you were, is it, so this is back that first year. I know you, you met Jamie, um, who were some other kind of mentors? Who were some other kind of, who were the, who were so the guys Jamie, that led you to, um, the cake? <laughs> well, I mean, basically that, that was just like, I was just running around like a crazy person, um, and meeting people, a lot of high fiving and, you know, Jamie and Debu, um, you know, we ended up traveling around together a lot. Jamie's always been better than me, so he's always someone I've looked up to for consistency. Um, and then, uh, you know, but so Jamie, Debu, and I, we had some good times just rallying around in old cars in Europe. Um, and that's but, back uh, when Jamie a, was living here in Sun Valley, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So who I looked up to, though, like in terms of, you know, flying, you know, the, the creme de la creme back then was Steve Cox and Martin Orlick was crushing. You know, these are the the guys that were just always, you know, doing well. Um, Alex Hoffer was was another one that, you know, I would call them mentors, but they were the gold standard, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Russ Ogden I met that year as well. Mm-hmm. Um and he, we became fast friends. Um, you know, he was an incredible pilot. He was, he was on Grady and Abex, and but also just a really nice guy. He loved. He, he's just, you know, was one of those people that you meet and you're like, wow, this is. We were just fast friends. So I yeah. met him at San Andre that year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I looked up a lot though to, at that time to Bob Drury and Jerome Malpoint, um, Felix Volk, you know, those are some of the guys that I was like, wow, they're out there, you know, living it and getting it and having adventures and documenting it. And so those were some of my, you know, at that time was definitely, this comp thing was kind of a, I, I did it to get better, you know, and then it became a full addiction. Um, but originally I was just more into like the adventuring and documenting aspects, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah. Cool. And then so that that year ended and then what? You got back you came back to the States? I came back to the States and looked for somewhere to live. Um I did a competition uh here in uh in Utah actually. The Nationals was here in September. And then uh I moved to Jackson Hole. I for I went to Jackson Hole for a competition, like a little inter uh, Intermountain League meet, um which I had been reading about that Nate Scales put on then. And that's actually the reason I moved to the Intermountain West was uh his Intermountain League meets. Um because I've been reading about them, and uh, I was like, I want some of that. That sounds amazing, you know. Um, and uh, so I went to Jackson for a competition, and I somehow won the competition, you know. Um, and that was a shock to everybody. <laughs> it's just like a Ridge pilot from Tory Pines on a DHV2. Uh, just kind of coming. And, and so I stayed. Um, and because uh, the flying was it was kind of the first time I had really big mountain, Rocky Mountain flying, you know. And was that... Um, T- take me back to that time like you you'd come from the alps which can certainly be 
uh, severe and, you know, shouldn't be taken lightly, but very different than the Intermountain West was, um, was it, did you find when you started flying in Jackson, was it like, oh man, man this is awesome? Or was it like, oh God, this is yeah, scary. No, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. You liked it. You have that personality. You dug it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. It was, yeah. I, and I still was super, I didn't even hardly ski the first year. I would just go flying and try to work on spins and stalls over the, over the snow, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, that community too, I was really, you know, was with John Hunt and who would go on to be one of my biggest mentors. Um, and John Patterson and, and there was all this, this big Chip Hildebrand and Josh Riggs. And there was this great community of pilots getting after it. Um, and, uh, and that, that's why I stayed as well. Cause I, I knew that I could, I could learn so much from them. Um, and, and I did, you know, I learned a tremendous amount about, you know, not just how to be in the mountains while flying, but how to be in the mountains in general, you know, how to be in the mountains while I'm skiing, how to be in, you know, what, what you're looking for and, just a ton of knowledge. Um, and I, you know, those are 10 of the best years of my life. I moved from there. I, I lived there for 10 years, but um, they'll always be in my mind, you know, 10 of the best years of my life. You and I met in 2012 down in Haiti. Um, you know, we'd been working together quite a bit in the magazine when I was out on the boat and sending you pictures and stuff, but we never actually met until Haiti. You invited me to come out there to, to fly. I was very novice, very, um, you know, very new at the cross country game. And I was looking for a place to live. Uh, you know, we, we'd been on the boat for years and years and was moving back to North America. And, and I asked you at the time, uh, and I've said this and printed this a million times. I'm sure you've gotten tired of this, but, but I asked you at the time, you know, where, where should I move to, um, to fly in the mountains and fly big lines? Because I could kind of see, even though I sucked, I could kind of see that that was where I wanted to go. Um, you said at the time, Jackson, Owens, um, Sun Valley, you've spent quite a bit of time in, in all those places. Um, do you, do you still, is that still kind of the creme de la creme for you? Sites like that? Yeah, I mean Utah's pretty good too. Now, yeah. I mean at the time I I couldn't imagine myself living in Utah. I'm liking it a lot, but the flying here is pretty it's pretty good too. Um, but yeah, I think for for the US, um, yeah, I think that still stands, you know. Take take me from take me from the time so you know you you come back you're in Jackson you 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 develop these relationships with Hunt and all these guys and you you start to fly bigger lines. How do you go from there? I'm assuming that's kind of 2005, 2006. How do you go from there to flying 204 miles two summers ago, which, uh, you know, took the North American foot launch record? What was that, you know, take me through that progression. Uh, well, I just, I, I got a job at a group home doing social work, and uh, they would let me go for the summers, you know. Um, so I would sign up for competitions in Europe. I would go over and meet Jamie and Debu, and we would just do comps in Europe. Um, and just opens, you know, nothing mm-hmm. big, but, but great competitions in places like Pedrajita or San Andre or La Raña or, you know, these classic flying places and the the french alps really taught me um my the cross country that i've you know the style of cross country that i fly i think still to this day um and that's that's kind of where i really cut my teeth for for flying distance um especially in Lorania. Lorania has a lot of really windy valleys (laughs) that come up from every different direction i feel like and are all blowing in different directions um it's funny that you say Lorania. that's where i feel like i kind of cut my teeth as well it's an interesting place yeah, cool. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so so I do that, and then um, you know it, it, that was only for like a month and a half. But the rest of the time, I'd be I would fly in Jackson with everyone, um, and then just uh, listening to everybody talk and looking at Chip's maps, where you had everybody's big flights for the last twenty years, you know, um, and uh, you know, and, and talking about it, and then as well though is is I think it's also bringing when people come in that are new, they bring a different perspective. You know, um, you know, like you did when you went to Sun Valley and flew 240 miles, you know, you did your perspective maybe was different enough that you could see this line that they have Nate and farmer hadn't been able to see, you know? Um, and so I think there's a little bit of that in Jackson. Um, but yeah, so just a lot of competition and then just flying as much as possible and traveling to fly as much as possible. Just, you know, kind of life dedication for that, that working hard, you know, double time all winter so I could fly all summer. Mm. 
you we we had this talk that was kind of inspiration for creating this podcast was listening to you and Russ and Martin and Farmer and Nate um after the the PWC here in Sun Valley in 2012 which was I think at the time my second comp um <laughs> and you you guys just had so much knowledge to share what are what are some of the you know what were when you when you look back at that time and then and you know flying the 204 miles and um you know winning US nationals last year what are some of the things that that you can remember that uh, guys like like you have said over you know the advice that you got back in 2007 2008 like i think of you as an amazing climber when when we fly comps together you're always on that fucking kavu wing at the top of the stack it's just it's unbelievable it's it's just you know it's always been something that i've really tried to figure out and it's i find it inspiring that you can just sit on top of everybody um and you know what what got you there what were some what were the tools or what were the um what were the lessons that you know, was that just practice or was that, you know, did Felix walk or somebody tell you like, Hey, you need to do this. And like, Oh, you had a, did you have a magic moment or was it just years? No, I mean, I, I've never, I didn't get much advice in all honesty. Um, in the beat for the first eight years, maybe. Hmm. Um, it's interesting it, that you say that I, I, I have to cut in just because Nate said the same thing that it used to be much more competitive. Um, you know, and I, I, that's been something that I, I can't even imagine because when I came into it, you, you have all, um, I've always felt like knowledge has just been like, even at the X ops, people were so open with sharing everything. And I, I, that's an interesting transition feel free to talk about that too. I'm, I'm ad, I'm giving you too many questions at once, but no, no, that's, uh, I agree. I think, I mean, I think the rat race has had something, you know, the Haley's have had something to do with that possibly. Um, and, and, but yeah, it definitely, when I, like for my first eight or nine, I, it was really hard to get anybody to give you advice. You know, like Hunt was like the first person to really be open and willing to just share whatever, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, I would ask him like, what's the weather doing today? And he would put up with my inane questions, God bless him. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, tell me what he thought and tell me what his experiences were. And, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was definitely like, you had to go out and figure it out. Um, you know, well, hat, hats off to you guys like you and Nate that I think have really changed that. You know, it feels to me like, um, you know, when new people get into the sport now, you know, we've seen, you know, our local kind of uh, hero this year, Mitch Riley, um, go from volunteering at the PWC here in 2012 to being our U.S. champion this year. You know, it's a, it's pretty neat to see. And I think, you know, we have guys like you that we can go to constantly i mean talk about inane questions i've been hammering you for years with this shit <laughs> oh no you, you're not you haven't been hammering me at all <laughs> no you haven't i'm being serious That's, <laughs> you know it's it, it, for i think for a lot of people like that we've spent so much time and parts of our lives doing it it's it's a joy to be to find somebody that's excited and and open to learning you know and taking whatever information that we have um you know, I, I don't teach anybody anymore. I don't guide or any of that. I only teach for free because uh, <laughs> it, to me, it's it's the only way I can do it. I'm not a great teacher necessarily. You know, like I watch farmer work or or Rob Spore or you know Chris Santa Croce, and I'm just always so impressed with their ability to teach. And um, you know, one of the things that actually you know a, an unlikely you know thing that that <laughs> stuck in my mind. I, I asked Santa Chris Santa Croce once. Um, you know, like, hey, how do I, you know, how do I climb better, or how, how do you climb, or how do you, you know? And he said, I don't know, maybe it was like eight, ten years ago. And he's like, I sample a lot of air. Mm. Um, and so that that's always stuck with me, and that's something that I would, you know, that's my my style of flying and thermaling um, is that I'm trying to sample a lot of packets of air, um, and that I'm always searching, you know, to some extent for a little better segment of the thermal and then I'm always searching in the glide for a little better gliding line. I'm just always trying to sample as much air as I can in a day so that I can find the best. Bit. Yeah, I I would I would say that, you know, if if you have a flying style that's really obvious, uh, you know, when you're in a massive gaggle, you're always the guy that's reaching out 
farther. Um, and, and I think like you and Josh, I learned a technique from you guys. Uh, I believe it was in Valle a couple years ago where if you guys converge on a thermal together, you always go opposite directions, you know, so you're, so you're sampling basically twice the amount of air. Um, and I, I thought that was, you know, uh, I, I love that technique. I try to do it with people all the time. Most of the time, they don't know what I'm doing, and they get all pissed off that I'm going the wrong way. But, but uh, you know, it's you're you're right. I, I I think about that with you. That I think I think people, especially when they're gaggle flying, they they tend to get uh, scared of you know losing that lift, so they stay exactly where they are. But you're you're proving that you can, you know, sample all over the place and still stay on top. And uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a nice move. You've well, yeah, I think in competition flying, it's to a fault. I actually have lost probably days because of that, um, especially at a World Cup level where everybody stays in one place. You have to just stay with them. Mm-hmm. But for cross-country flying, which is ultimately, I mean, that's the thing I always remind myself. That's what I'm most into. You know, I got into competition because it was cross-country competition. It was a competition cross-country. Hmm. And so, you know, for cross country, it works great still, you know, for me, it's, and, and it can be on a very small level, just even within the thermal, you know, and it's so, I think it's just like, you know, over year after year after year of doing that and you start to build a good sense, a good sense of, uh, you know, space and, and where you should have your glider. I also fly really flat. Okay. Um, I, I use a lot of outside brake to, and I push it out to yaw the glider. Okay. Um, so I think that is another one. I, I don't fly, you know, I don't, I don't, it's very rarely that I just like bank it up, you know, hmm. um, I'm kind of a flat turner. I think, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard when people ask like, what kind of pilot you are. I have no idea actually. <laughs> you're, you're a good one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, what's your style? I'm like, I don't know. Like we have styles. I didn't even, I don't even know what the styles are to be honest. You, um, you, I know one of your goals was to make the, the U.S. team and represent us at Worlds, which you've done now twice uh, or, or more. Is it the last two, right? No, just two. Yeah, yeah the last two. Um, you know, uh, there was a lot of talk when you guys went out. We always get so excited about watching. And, you know, um, you know, on a, on a good day, you and Josh – uh, and Eric, uh, who represented us the last one or the last two, um, can beat anybody. But in the worlds, um, you know, we've been pretty weak, you know, compared to the Swiss and the French. There are the obvious reasons for that. They have a lot more money. They have a lot more hours. You know, it's much easier to fly in Europe. Uh, there's a there's a whole long list. But what can we what can we do as a as a nation to improve? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I've had two tr- uh, terrible performances in the world. For, for me personally, I, I just don't. I don't want to race a paraglider for two weeks. I have no. That doesn't interest me anymore at all. Um, one week is about the max that I really want to race a paraglider for a number of reasons. I just don't. You know, I don't. I don't have the constitution to race to push full bar for two weeks. I think. Mm. You know, mm. it's. I just wear down. Okay. Um, I don't care that much. I don't, I'm, I'm, my ADD kicks in. I just don't care, you know, for two weeks to, it doesn't, it, it's not fun to me after day eight. It's mm. just a job, you know? Right. Um, and that, you know, and I'm doing it for fun. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's also just a, you know, it's three, you have to take three weeks off of work essentially. Right. You know? It's just, you know, so it cuts into like anything else you want to do that year. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I want to still do world cups. A week is perfect for me. Um, but so, uh, as a team, um, I don't know what we can do. I think we have, you know, last year I had a bit of bad luck, uh, health wise. Um, and, uh, that, that was tough. Um, then I definitely was a, you know, by the end was a weak part of the team. Um, maybe we could all get together and fly a little bit more together. Um, but it's a, it's a weird thing cause you don't fly together during the comp. It's an individual, it's not a team sport typically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, I don't even know what the French can, you know, they have really good briefings and they have maps and, you know, I think, you know, farmer took on the, the role this year and did an amazing job as team leader. I think, you know, moving forward, you know, maybe they could, they could even figure out we could figure out altitudes for final glide, you know, and so that you have those written down. Um, you know, maybe do more training before. Oh, we did some tra- we did enough training last year that didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> I, 
I think we just fall apart. Our flying style is too aggressive for a 14-day competition, too. Mm. Yeah. You know, I know, like in in Switzerland, uh, you know, this is something that I've I've been wanting to do uh, for the last couple of years. I just haven't been able to have the time or the schedule and stuff with stuff going on. But you know, like the Swiss have their league, and like every weekend, you know, you're you're flying with you know some of the best, well, a lot of the best pilots in the world every weekend racing, and it's just it's like training. You know, I mean, I think that we get the opportunity to fly big lines when the weather lines up, but it's not the same. It's not training um and it just seems like we're so spread out uh and our sites are so uh notoriously uh inconsistent that it's pretty hard to do that you know in europe even when the weather's bad you can go fly you can go set a little small task like they do at Woodrat. you know when the weather's not that good and it just seems it seems like we got a lot stacked up against us but i it yeah it's curious to hear um your thoughts on that because like i said it, it seems like independently um you know we've got great talent it's just hard to do it as a team yeah no i think that's i think your points are very valid you know yeah we don't, we don't compete enough i mean i'm i'm not yeah i guess maybe like if we had to be maybe we made it mandatory for each pilot to do at least like three competitions or four competitions that year of the world you know when you look back um you know, if you could imagine yourself back to those early days when you were a 50-hour pilot, maybe at the end of those 31st days at Torrey, um, what is what was what's some advice when you look back on the, the beginning of your paragliding career that you would have liked to have gotten that you didn't? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, traveled even harder and flown in even more places now that my I'm having you know body problems in terms of my you know my back and stuff. Right. <laughs> I wish I would have gone a little harder, I guess. Um, yeah, done, done more SIVs. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've been really lucky. I've been very fortunate. Um, I've, I've had a safe, relatively safe, uh, you know, track record. One minor injury in, in Valle de Bravo, Mexico, at the turn point called El Scroto. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a great story. I think you covered that with with Kari on her podcast. <laughs> Maybe we'll. I'll point. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes if people want to listen to the uh, El Scroto tree. They can. They can listen to it. That's a great story. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Have fun. Keep it. That's it. It's. It's. You know. It's pretty simple. It's. You know. Nate has been a huge mentor. Um, you know. Bill Belcourt has been a huge mentor, uh, flying wise as well. Coming back to the states, just kind of helping me keep my head right um, and keep things in perspective. And you know, the main thing that Nate is always stressed is they have fun, you know, and you know, when I look at when I was having fun, I was learning the most. And so if you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. And you need to change and make, you know, make whatever it is, you know, you're doing fun for you, whether that be now I like sled rides or I like, you know, um, there's also that learning progression, you know, that, that you have to respect. And it's like, sometimes if you skip past it, that means you're not having fun anymore. You've gone past your abilities and you've gone past where the fun is. Um, and sometimes you need to take a step back in order to, you know, move three steps forward. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I think, I think that don't be afraid to step back in order to move forward. My my uh, one of my supporters in the X Alps, a guy you know, uh, Bruce Marks, had a, a really bad crash in the Sass Valley. One of those, you know, incredibly lucky to be alive and incredibly walked away um, uh, through his reserve, but too low and what didn't come out, but it stopped his rotation. Anyway, we won't get into it too much, but it really set him back. Um, he was flying incredibly aggressively and uh, really getting after it. You know, a couple back to back years of 500 hours. Um, have you been through i mean and he's just now that was two summers ago and he's just now kind of you know he he stepped way back on wings went down to a mentor this summer um and he's just now really coming back to where it's fun again um and which has been a delight to see um have you gone through times like that yourself yeah i uh i threw my reserve in sun valley i was i kind of moved up to comp wings and um I was, you know, I, I went flying and, and uh, it was before there was a, a nationals in Sun Valley and I was tired and I just flown a couple tandems and, you know, I remember telling myself like, oh, well, you need to go flying when you're tired and worked, you know, that's good practice, it's good training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas I should have been thinking like, yeah, you're tired and worked, it's probably not the best time to go flying, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went up and I, yeah, I, I 
took off on a comp wing and almost, you know, pretty much I, I had to throw my reserve and I got really lucky. I got it out. I remember thinking, if this doesn't open, I'm dead. And as soon as I thought that, it opened and then it was like, oh, blam. And then I hit the ground. Um, and so it was midday in Sun Valley. You know, I just got, yeah, got taught what was what. And, um, and so from there, I tried to get back on the, I had I, been given a comp wing for the first time. It was like my first, you know, I, I had a thing in the, in cross country, a future hero section, you know, and I was, I was like 39th in the world WPRS or 49th, I don't know, something like that. And I was feeling pretty, pretty badass. Um, and so it was really hard, like, you know, and also you, you know, the way I had lived up to then, I built kind of my identity around paragliding, you know? Um, and so it was very hard for me to take my medicine and, and, you know, I was flying this comp wing and I was scared and, you know, and also that the one that I had was something wrong with it for sure, I think. (laughs) And I I was with Nate over the boulders, like pretty deep over the boulders and I just lost it and I, I cascaded for about 2000 feet. Um, and I, I pretty much flew back to Sun Valley, packed it up and sold it and then stepped back, you know, to a two, three, which was the glider, you know, a Trango two, which is what, you know, and I, I flew a two, three, I think for two seasons, um, until I could go back to comp gliders. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was, it was, it was good though. It was like one of those, you know, one of those things where, you know, finally I listened, you know, and Nate helped me too. He's like, dude, you get, you know, get off a comp point. It's your, your work, you know? And cause I was just up there just like, Oh my God, every little bump. Right. I'm like, can you imagine six hours? Like, oh God, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> um, it has. Who, who would do that? You know, if I, I would have left the sport if I, you know, kept doing that, you know, cause yeah. there's no way. Um, but yeah, it was about putting the ego aside, putting aside the fact that, you know, I was a comp pilot in my mind. That's what I had dedicated my life for the last years to doing. Um, even, you know, putting away the fact that I just got this free wing for the, you know, I just was sponsored, quote unquote, doing what was right and doing what was healthy and what would help me in the long run progress as a pilot. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard for people to see that because there's all those factors. Mm. I think you're you're talking about staying in touch and in tune with where you are mentally you know when when you came out and and uh for the intermountain comp that nate had this this summer here i had just gotten back from the x alps and um you know we flew it was insane you, you flew like 38 hours in five days it was incredible i mean we'd never get weather like that here it was just perfect um and i woke up every day hoping it was going to rain because i i knew that i wasn't on my game and i knew that i was tired and uh you know i i was flying that the wing at the end of the x alps that went in the ocean and I was pretty sure it wasn't tuned very well and I just was you know it was kind of my first bout of flying not very confidently and uh it's scary and you really do have to listen to that you know I kept flying because it was like you were here and it was awesome and I felt like I just shouldn't miss a day when it was so good but it was um you know in, in some ways it was pretty silly for me to be in the air and I I came out of that week thinking a lot about you know wait a minute this is supposed to be fun it, it was fun but it wasn't fun enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's a it's a dangerous you know endeavor you know and so for me any of these dangerous endeavors they have to be worth it yeah um and that's something i think everybody needs to ask themselves seriously you know i mean i, I also too you know we're we're having some serious safety you know like i talked with belcourt about this the other day and, and he doesn't think it's a um he thinks it's normal. It's like a regression to the mean, our safety. You know, we've had a lot of deaths this year in the U.S., a lot of injuries. Um, you know, we may lose our insurance um, because of that. Um, and, you know, we, I, you know, my, I, I'm kind of of the mind that we all need to do something collectively to focus more on safety, you know, and and make sure every time that you're leaving the ground that, you know, you're you're ready to leave the ground. And then, you know, also every time, you know, in, in your flying site, we have to make sure that people that aren't going to leave the ground aren't like meandering around our flying sites. In my opinion is that we all have to collectively get together and make a change here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, 
you know, instead of high-fiving for the longest flight, we should be high-fiving people for safe flights or, you know, everything, everything is good. So a different approach. I think it was, you know, we, we had Nate on the show a couple, a couple shows back and, you know, he made the decision this summer to step down from a comp glider and he's just been loving it on his Triton, you know, an an ENC glider and uh, really enjoying that. I think there's, that's been a common theme that's run through all these podcasts is, is safety and risk. And, um, you know, I, I think returning from, from the, the Owens event, uh, you know, two major accidents out there, and I don't want to belabor the safety thing, um, but I, I, I agree with you. I think that you know the the real lesson there on both of those, um, and, and you know you can never call it from the outside, and I, I don't want to uh, diminish or demean anything that happened there. But you know, I I believe I think the consensus was is is both those guys had the opportunity to throw their reserve, you know, and and, uh, and what we were talking about was you know throw it hard and throw it early. They work. Um, we had another reserve throw I think day three and that guy you know landed and packed it up and walked away you know no no problem whatsoever so I think uh, it, it is a good thing to revisit this stuff and um, you know make sure we're flying safe yeah I, I've, I've probably seen over a hundred reserve tosses um, in 15 years and I've never heard of someone being injured wow right. you know I mean there was days at Peter Hita during the British Open there'd be seven in a day Golly, unbelievable. It was amazing this one guy I mean, they were just, it was like he threw it like 12,000 feet. I'm like, he's going to come down in like an hour. <laughs> Another guy, he got sucked up into a cloud, and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and he's, he's on the radio, and it was, it was really annoying. I mean, he's like, I am at 4,000 meters. Just, he was like giving us like t- where he was every 10 meters. <laughs> Almost like he wanted to get on there and be like, shut up and die like a man, you know? <laughs> And uh, and finally, you know, he's like, I have returned to a point of no advantage. May I continue racing? And you're like, what? Like he got sucked up, spit out, and then he spiraled down and wanted to keep racing. I was like, that guy, he was a star. <laughs> uh, I would have just gone and folded up and like left. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, yeah. it's interesting you bring that, that up because, you know, Michael Vichy, really, really good comp pilot in, in this year's X-Alps uh, for the first time, he threw his reserve in the race uh, way high, apparently, like 3,000 meters, uh, and he landed in a lake. And, you know, I asked him about it afterwards, you know, like, hey, why did you throw so early? And he's like, why not? You know, I my I lost my glider so badly, and I have I've never thrown my reserve, and uh, I I thought that when it first you know the way it went was just going to be unrecoverable, and uh, I was over a lake, <laughs> and I thought shit, man, that is genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when in doubt, whip it out. I mean, it's so yeah. I think we need to focus on that. Um, you know, it's it's. You know, there's a, there's there's two theories. You know, some people say, well, you know, if you read a, a ski magazine, it doesn't talk about avalanches all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another theory that says, you know, we need to educate ourselves. And basically, you know, um, we're in the U.S. HPA magazine, we're, you're going to start seeing accident reporting again. Um, it's taken us a long time to figure out the um, legal implications for doing that. But I remember when I was, you know, a new pilot, that's the number one thing I would read because I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that, you know, and so I didn't want to do what these people were doing. So there's a piece of advice, actually. Always be willing to be inconvenienced. Um, you know, one of the threads that I saw through the, uh, through these accidents was that uh, I wanted to get to my car, so I crashed into this thing. I didn't want to walk, so I hit this thing. Um, I didn't want to do this, so I decided to put it in the sketchy place instead of a sweet place that was a mile away, you know? Um, so I would say that that's, that's kept me out of trouble a lot. I, I remind myself of that a lot, you know? Like, hey, dude, like, are you just kind of lazy right now, or is this the best place to land? Um, especially when you're flying cross country and, you know, open distance kind of stuff where you're out in these random places. When, when I was, you know, really first learning, I, I think I got the most one of the most valuable lessons uh, watching an accident, um, and, and I'll, I'll relay it here because I think it's, you know, it's something people should should think about in that same theme of, you know, making a judgment call that could save your life and be slightly inconvenienced. Uh, I was flying outside of Annecy. Uh, it was a guided trip with a guy named Toby Cologne, and uh, he had a really good safety record. And uh, this, But this day, this particular day, was uh, really windy, and so he brought us to a place that was kind of down out of the mountains. It was low. 
it was it was basically a ridge soaring site. It was on a cliff edge, and, and the weather was really bad. Um, you know, big cells were coming through, and it just was not an obvious flying day. And he asked all the students, uh, you know, before we went off, you know, what do you guys think of today? And, and exclusive, every one of us were kind of like, I don't know, it kind of looks dicey. And Jody, uh, my my partner at the time, was the only one that was like, it's not a flying day. I'm not going. And uh, and 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 Toby was like, well, I think actually it's it's you know you can fly today. You just have to fly between the cells, get on the ground um, before something comes through, which sounds kind of ludicrous looking back. Um, and uh, I mean, he was he was right, but but then you you did have to you had to be on the ground between these things. You know, if the, something came through, you had to make the judgment call: when is it coming? How fast is it coming? So it relied a lot on on skill that I think a lot of us didn't have. Um, anyway, we all launched. And, and I got quite lucky because I bombed out. Uh, and and then as this cell kind of started coming closer to us, uh, three people were still in the air. One guy, a very low hours pilot, maybe 50 hours, Toby and, and my friend Bruce, who was my supporter in the in the race. Uh, and, and I radioed to them and said, hey, this thing's coming really fast. You can see that there's a lot of wind on the ground. You know, you guys need to get on the ground or run, you know, go over the back. And uh, Bruce and Toby ran. They were high enough that they could get over this ridge and they ran off the back and 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 you know this poor other guy didn't have you know he wasn't high enough and didn't really have those skills in his toolbox and he really all he had was big ears so he put in his big ears and he was trying to get down to this field uh, in front of this ridge at right when this thing hit and it was just like watching a horror movie you know his his wing was completely out of control he's getting tossed around and then there's power lines and we're all radioing look out for that and look out for that and uh, and finally about 30 feet off the ground uh, his wing just went parachutal and he hit hard and he kind of you know this was the second lesson was he kind of tried to stick it instead of doing a nice PLF because it was big long grass and he maybe would have been okay or maybe a sprain or something if he would have just rolled with it but he tried to stick it and you know, save the reader or save the listener all the gory details, but he got really hurt. Um, and, you know, the whole time he was doing that, I kept thinking, God, all he's got to do is turn downwind and ditch it into the trees. There was this huge canopy of lovely, soft French trees, uh, you know, where he would have most likely destroyed his glider. Um, and maybe he would have, you know, maybe he would have gotten unlucky and hit a branch pretty hard or something, or, you know, like you did, uh, El Scroto, the tree, tree but, you you know, he would have most likely been completely fine, and um, it made me realize at that time, ever since then, I've always been looking for what are the options here, you know, because I think eventually, if you're, if you paraglide, you will get an error that is bad, you know, you will probably push it too far at some point, or not read the sky well enough, and have to deal, and um, I think it's a good idea to be willing to inconvenience yourself, or to, um, you know, land in water, land in a lake, land somewhere that's safer, and maybe you destroy, destroy your gear, but you get to walk away. You, you have, you know, since winning uh, nationals last year, um, and, you know, you went to Worlds, I know, but you've kind of dropped off the competition scene a little bit. Um, what are you kind of focusing on these days? What are your what are your goals with paragliding and and life? Yeah, well, um, I was I got injured, just a degenerative back thing. Um, about four days into Columbia, it got really bad, so that I could I you know I couldn't really sit for more than ten minutes, and if I did, I have to hold on to something to, from pain when I stood up. So I had I had back surgery, um, and so I've just been recovering from that, um, and that took a long time. Uh, I'm just maybe finally recovering. I hesitate to even say that, um, but you know I was I had to kind of walk again, and then you know so anyway during that time I thought a lot about you know what I had been doing, what I wanted to do uh, in the future, and for me you know I've been competing for so you know for uh, 13 years and. Uh, that was a huge part of my life and always will be. Um, but this year, I just, you know, I, I only have time for one or two trips uh, anymore. And, you know, uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, we went to Nepal and uh, to um, film uh, the Karma Flights crew there. And, and then I went to Iran. So to basically, you know, check out this this culture that, you know, that our culture basically hides. Um and so for me, I was, I was getting back a little bit to my roots of utilizing um, the canopy as a, as a mechanism of travel, um, you know, for both in the air and on the ground and, you know, across continents and 
Um, and that's, you know, kind of, I don't know, I just, I'm running out of time is how I look at it, uh, you know, body-wise, you know, <laughs> I guess it was my first realization. I had a good run, but it's my first realization that <laughs> the clock is ticking, and uh, if I want to do some of these things, I have to do them now. Hmm. Um, so, you know, competition I can do when I'm 50. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll be that guy on the one, too, just, ha you know, having a ball. All the young kids will be like, who is this old geezer? <laughs> And do you have uh, do you have goals in terms of uh, you know still flying big lines or um, you know I know that you recently moved to Salt Lake and you and Bill and and Cody and some of the guys down there are looking at some pretty interesting uh, lines. What do you what's and are you and you were planning on uh, I think it got shut down because rain this year, but you were planning on joining the ozone team uh, for another record breaking attempt in Texas. Are, are are those still kind of on your radar? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, that's it's just the the cross country part will is still alive and stronger than ever. I mean, I had my biggest year cross country wise like, in a lot of years because I wasn't competing. Mm -hmm. um, so that I could just be here, you know, during rat race, I flew 170 miles or something, and you know, it's just because you're here, you have to be there to get it. I mean, that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you get to a certain level, but then it's just like surfing. You know, we're waiting for the swell. You know, and the swell only comes in once every five years sometimes. Right. You know, and so, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. I'm enjoying waiting for the swell. I'm enjoying just mountain biking more. And, uh, but still, like, yeah, no, we're going to, I'm going to go for the world record time. Congratulations to Frank Brown and the crew in, in Brazil. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, I'd like to go down there. And, um, you know, that's on my list next year. I'd like to go to the Kiro Valley, you know, in Kenya. We've talked about that. And mm -hmm. that's still on my list. And, yeah, there's just, you know, no, I mean, I, I'm, if anything, I'm, you know, it's, it's, I just slowed down on competing just because of the time, you know, I just took, I couldn't justify using that time for competing and, and not using it for Iran. I was also trying to go to Iran with, you know, we've been trying to go to Iran. Uh, I was, I was the last man standing still trying to go to Iran. Um, <laughs> And for two years, and so the the way that it worked, I was pretty much on hold all summer waiting for a visa. So yeah, it's like one of those things. Something's got to give, and you know, and I'm working a lot more. And, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm buying a lot more things. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what working more means, I think, in this country. It does. Um, right. So uh, yeah, so it's it's something's got to give, but. Um, but I'm going back to Nepal with a, a crew from Keen, and uh, we're going to uh, finish up a, a project where we're documenting Karma Flights um, and Karma Flights' effort in Nepal. I, I couldn't be more proud to call them my friends, um, Isabella and Prem and Loxman and Nirwan and Jamie Messenger and, and all of the people who have donated or been a part of the effort, um, Tim Exley, in some way. Um, you know, we raised uh, this year, I've been working a lot on the cloud-based foundation stuff, you know, instead of, instead of competing. I mean, that's the thing. It's like if you go to, if I went to comps, I, I've had less time to do my volunteer stuff. And yeah, just, I mean, it, it, I'll go back next year. I'm, I'm missing it, you know. I'll, I'll do some next year. But I've been working a lot with the cloud-based foundation and trying to get our theories of change dialed in and try to figure out some, you know, get a new website up and figure out how to streamline our process a little bit. And um, but we had, you know, after the earthquake, you know, the paragliding, hang gliding community and the world in general donated about four hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars towards rebuilding Nepal um, through the cloud-based foundation for and Karma flights. And they're doing. What's amazing is what they're doing with it. I mean, they they make this. I mean, they barely ever. I mean, it's like we still have a lot of it because they're partnering with a lot of organizations. They're really stretching out the dollars. So we partner with on most projects. Um, and you know they're they're doing things you know um, that I couldn't be more proud of and and uh, and doing them in a way that's sustainable and transparent and uh, you can locally based and um, and you know basically need oriented as well. Mm -hmm. So because we don't have a huge bureaucracy like a lot of these NGOs like we saw in Haiti, Gavin. Mm -hmm. um, we can move at the speed of need, um, and that's kind of a beautiful thing. That and I think a niche that we're really relishing in. It's also a niche that fits our paragliding mentality, you know, <laughs> where it's fluid and changing, and um, you know, and if the village, you know, all of a sudden it's like the village has temporary structures, but they need solar. Well, then we work on solar instead of saying, well, no, we we only do temporary shelter. There's another story. I mean, really, you should interview Bella. Um, I, I've let her tell her stories, but. You know, those other stories, those guys, I mean, the work that they have done is nothing, I mean, it, it's miraculous. Um, and so, yeah, if you see them ever, buy them a beer because, uh, I mean, they couldn't have 
you know, put our, you know, our sport and our people in a better light. Um, it's, it's really, truly, truly something to behold. So I'm really, I'm really grateful to go back and help tell their story and get, um, um, you know, GoPro is, uh, you know, Gavin, you connected me with GoPro for a cause, um, you know, kind of to tell a few stories and they, they are really excited about this Nepal one and the cloud-based foundation and, and are going to become, we're officially partnering with them. Um, to to tell the story of karma flights and of how to rebuild Nepal and tourism in Nepal, um, and there's going to be a, a campaign to of matching donations. So they're going to put up the first thirty thousand dollars, and you know we're gonna you know we'll come back to you, Gav, and get, get you to push us through these channels. But we you know we as pilots need to rally around and try to raise thirty more and. Um, and then, you know, it's, the, the world's the, our oyster. Um, that's awesome, man. That's super inspiring. It's like, uh, sounds like the opposite of what we saw in terms of quote unquote aid in, in Haiti. And it's, it's really nice to see dollars being put to good use like that. That's, that's really neat. I've been following Bella's work on Facebook. I should get her on the show. That that's just awesome. It's so cool to see. Well done. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, and that's what I mean. It's, it's just, for me, it's, you know, you and I have worked over the years telling stories and learning how to film and, and filming more and more and, and we've succeeded. Um, for me, it's a real honor to utilize some of these skills that we've learned to tell the stories. Cool. Well, that's a, that's a really good place to end. Thank you so much, Nick. Why don't we, before we sign off, um, I know, I know sponsorship's been a, a really cool part of your, your life the last few years. Do you want to give a shout out to, to, uh, some of those groups and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up and, and hopefully next time I see you, we'll be flying around the sky somewhere. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, um, you know, a huge thank you to Kavu and Keen. Um, both of those companies have been the biggest supporters of hang gliding and paragliding in the U.S. Um, and year after year have uh, funded and supported. Um, you know, actually, Keen was the reason why. You know, one of the reasons why Karma Flights kind of um, became what it is today. Um, they Jeff Shapiro. Uh, who's been on your show? Um, had uh, basically, and Jeff O'Brien and I uh, helped start uh, with Isabella and Prem a Keen to Learn program in Nepal, and that was the kind of the, the cornerstone of the Karma Flights, um, you know, kind of uh, office for the first four years of its existence. So, thank you to Keen for doing that. They also helped recycle paragliders into backpacks, you know, to get keep those out of the landfill. And a huge thanks to Kabu for always supporting paragliding and hang gliding. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Nick, thanks very much. Uh, really, really, as always, appreciate your time. I always feel like every time I talk to you, I, I get a lot smarter. Uh, and I uh, hope the listeners enjoyed it. And uh, appreciate it, buddy. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you. you enjoyed that i certainly did i have to apologize for the quality of the audio nick and i did that over skype i'm still kind of figuring that out because there's often echoes and my internet's not great here and catch them sometimes so i had quite a battle with a lot of that stuff i tried to edit it as best i could and hopefully it wasn't too annoying um, always just such a great pleasure to sit down and speak with somebody who's had such a positive impact on my life i hope some of the things he had to say will have a positive impact on yours as well uh, as always following in the footsteps of a podcast that I am totally addicted to, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, highly recommended. Um, all we ask for is a buck show. We don't have any sponsors or any kind of anything like that, and uh, I will continue doing this. I love it. I, I love the education I'm getting and, and passing on. Is, is uh, I hope it's really valuable. It certainly is fun, uh, but it also allows me to buy beers and uh, take these guys out for dinner for their time, and it goes a long way. You all have been incredibly generous. I appreciate your notes and thanking me for doing it. That goes a long ways um if you if you have the time i would love a rating on stitcher or itunes of course that helps this is a tiny little niche but it's certainly been uh i think proving valuable in the in the human flight world um so feel free to rate us on that if you wouldn't mind uh you can find me on facebook or instagram uh if you have people that you want to recommend or you want to hear on the show for sure let me know uh next week i'm sitting down with josh Cohn, uh the josh bot and we're just out with him at us nationals and in, in the owens uh and so that should be a great show and then i'll be up in uh bamp for the film festival for the premiere of the rockies traverse with will gad and i've been promising will gad on the show so i'm bringing my audio gear and i promise to pin him down up there uh not not an easy thing to do he's a busy guy but i promise i'll get him on the show uh, soon so thank you very much for listening i appreciate it and we'll catch you next time cheers <laughs>